From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello there. Thanks for joining us on Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And my name's Andrew Dunkley. Good to have your company. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew Dunkley. Good to talk to you again. You too. Nice to catch up as always. Yeah. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at a rocket launch and a new player entering the space race, if it's still a race. I think everybody's uh, getting their piece of the pie these days. But we're talking about New Zealand. Uh, heavy rainfall shaping the surface of Mars and NASA's mission to touch the sun. Those are a few of the things we'll be talking about today. But first, Fred, New Zealand um, sent a rocket up. Um, it's a bit of a test, but uh, th- this is a ro- rocket's quite amazing, the way they made it and the, um, the, the technology that went into it. That's absolutely right, Andrew. Uh, it's the technology that I find really quite um, quite inspiring in its own way. Um, and I speak as somebody who, when he was a kid, actually attempted to make his own rockets, <laughs> which were spectacularly failures. Um, anyway, that's another story. No, I think we all tried something like that as <laughs> We kids. did try it, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, a company which is uh, a partly, uh, uh, sorry, partly New Zealand, partly American, uh, the company is called Rocket Lab. Oh, who thinks wow. of these Gee, names? This what is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Another example of astronomers giving things that they let's just lo- not let them name ships. Yeah, that's right. Because the they'll ship. just say the ship, <laughs> the yeah. SS ship. Yeah, carry no, on. Ro- Rocket Lab. Um, I take my hat off to them for all. You know, we might mock the name. It's a pretty descriptive name. And what they've done is they've evolved a manufacturing technique. Uh, that uh, allows rockets to be produced. And these are rockets of significant size. They're going to take um, uh, satellites into orbit. But it allows them to be produced cheaply. So that, um, as far as I can make out, there are three major innovations. One is that the rocket bodies are made of carbon composite rather than aluminium and things like that. And, uh, And this is something that can be created very, very rapidly. Um... Uh, the second innovation, which I think is positively staggering, the engine, that many of the components of the engines of these rockets are actually 3D printed. So, you know, you put your, put your computer design into a 3D printer and out pops a rocket motor at the other end. It's probably a bit more complicated than that. But... Well, Fred, I'm still trying to get my head around 3D printing. I, 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 look, I think I've got a really basic, like, uh, amoeba-level understanding of it. I just don't know how it works. I mean, you hear about them making heart valves and all sorts of stuff out of 3D prints, and I think, what's it? Hang on, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah. So, well, it it is. It's extraordinary. I mean, uh, the 
the bottom line is that uh, whereas you know if you if you machine something out of solid that subtractive manufacturing because yeah. you're taking stuff away and if you 3d print it it's additive manufacturing because you're building up layer by layer this uh, this component which can be very very complex and in fact you can make things with 3d printers that you could never manufacture uh, in any other way mm. um, rocket engines might be one of them uh, and the third innovative component is related to the engine and that is that it uses electric fuel pumps so they've they carry batteries on board and they've got fuel pumps that push the fuel into the rocket motor and um and, and basically allow it to function properly and i think that's partly to do with um uh the fact that the carbon composite uh, body is not so uh, amenable to uh, a pressurized fuel tank as a, as a metal body would be. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, it, that, it sounds, I haven't really looked into this, but I think that's partly the, the, the reason. So uh, about um, a week and a half ago, uh, uh, Rocket Lab did a test firing of their rocket from uh, Hawke's Bay in New Zealand. It's a place that I know because um, I've been to Napier, which is which is on Hawke's Bay. So have I, yes. um, Yeah, that's right. Beautiful, and the other beautiful end of, town, by the way. It, it, Absolutely. It's stunning, yes. Art Deco yeah, buildings. And, Art Deco, mm. that's right. It's beautiful. <laughs> um, I actually know somebody there. I, I was going to email him and find out whether he actually saw the launch. Portland Island on the other side of Hawke's Bay is where the, uh, where the launch site is. And this launch was... Not entirely successful in that the plan was an, a really ambitious plan to actually put satellites into orbit. Achieving orbital velocity on your first shot, I think, is a very ambitious plan indeed. Um, but I, I, and I think uh, things went very well. The first uh, stage worked perfectly. Second stage uh, separated successfully, but didn't. The upper stage didn't actually reach uh, the orbital. Um, a speed an orbital height of 500 kilometers so it was their first attempt they've basically did plans for a second attempt very soon it may well have happened by the time our listeners are <laughs> enjoying we hope this podcast um the uh, the, the then i think their sights are set very firmly on the commercial satellite market and it's um really uh, the idea is to uh uh, find a niche in the market that's looking at these, you know, these small satellites, the little nanocubes that are, are very much in vogue as a way of getting small amounts of equipment into orbit for science and for commerce, all kinds of things. These um, nanocubes, uh, as I understand it, they don't stay in orbit very long. They re-enter uh, relatively quickly. So they're not really contributing to the space junk problem, but they're inexpensive. Mm. And uh, and uh, I, I think that there is clearly a market there. Um, the uh, great thing about Rocket Lab and the thing that they're promoting as their real strength is that they can manufacture their rockets very easily and quickly. Uh, and they're aiming at one launch a week. Uh, wow. In, um, you know, in, uh, in the future. They're, they're Policy, I guess, contrasts with something like SpaceX, where uh, Elon Musk's company are concentrating very much on bringing the, the boosters back to Earth um, mm. because they're the most expensive component. But if you can make your boosters cheaply and churn them off the production line at one a week, then <clears throat> that's a different, clearly a different approach and probably viable. 
Indeed, and and certainly worth keeping an eye on, and we wish them well. And it's it's I think it's great that New Zealand's in the space race. <laughs> I do too. Fantastic. I think it's yeah. brilliant. Absolutely. Them. Take my hat off to the Kiwis. Yes, indeed. All <laughs> right. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts uh, with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and King with a go. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred. Now let's move on to my favourite planet, uh, because that's where my favourite Martian came from. That is Mars, and uh, some interesting new, uh, I don't know if it's a theory or if it's proven, you'll be able to tell me, that the shaping of the planet's surface may have been due to heavy rain, which is Uh, certainly happening on Earth all the time. (laughs) That's right, except it was heavier on Mars, apparently. Ah. So, yes, this is, uh, in a sense, it is a theoretical study, Um, uh, and it's been made by two geologists uh, in the United States, what they've done is they've looked at the sort of what we know of the climate history of Mars. Um, and remember, for the first, probably the first maybe even billion years of its life, and Mars is 4.6 billion years old like the Earth is, but for the first uh, perhaps billion years of its life, Mars was a warm and wet planet mm. rather than the cold, dry world it is today. So the, um, the uh, scientists have looked at... Um, the way that rain might have formed on Mars. And the reason why they're doing that is because we see on Mars evidence of, uh, you know, rain-driven rock formations. By that, I mean the the process of erosion that caused river valleys and things of that sort here on Earth also happened on Mars. Uh, So rain clearly fell uh, and caused um, these erosive features that we see, uh, as I said, river valleys, estuaries, all that sort of thing. We believe that there was an ocean on Mars as well in the northern hemisphere. So what they've done is they've studied the uh, the atmosphere of, of Mars as we believe it uh, evolved in its 4.6 billion year history and looked at the way the rain might have fallen from that. Uh, apparently, uh, in the beginning, uh, you know, not long after its formation, Mars's atmospheric pressure was very high. It was actually about four times what it what the pressure is here on Earth, uh, and that means that raindrops could not form uh, in any real size. Uh, any rain that was falling would, they think, be more like a mist rather than uh, the kind of rain that we're used to. Yeah. Uh, they they reckon an upper limit uh, to the raindrops of about three millimeters at that stage. However. As Mars's climate evolved uh, and Mars's atmosphere evolved, the pressure fell uh, and eventually uh, settled down at about one and a half times the Earth's atmospheric pressure. And it's that uh, point at which it gets really interesting because um, the fact that uh, you've got a lower gravity on Mars than you have on Earth, but a similar atmospheric pressure means that you can actually form raindrops with a much bigger diameter uh, than than anything you find on Earth. And in fact, they they speculate that these raindrops could be up to 7.3 millimetres in diameter, which is getting on for a centimetre. That's That's a a pretty hefty drop of water. Drop of water, that's right. And so that um, means that you've got uh, a sort of fairly high intensity of of fall, um, probably combined with the lower gravity, but the bigger raindrops would perhaps give you a very similar kind of erosive power to what rainfall on the Earth would be. Mm. Um, so uh, that's um, that's been the suggestion that they've made, that the falls uh, would have been so heavy that, you know, the soil itself couldn't have absorbed the moisture, and then you get these runoff 
uh, effects and, and the, the valley networks and things of that sort being formed, um, which we see still today. That is all fossilized in the surface of Mars. So um, these scientists, uh, uh, one from, I think, Johns Hopkins University, the other from the Smithsonian Institute, have uh, basically solved a problem, which is how could you get enough water on Mars falling as rain to make these, uh, these features, given the lower gravity of the planet? Um, very interesting stuff. As I said, it's still theory. But um, I do like the idea of uh, standing in a rain shower on Mars with uh, centimetre-sized drops whizzing past your face. Yeah, you just need a titanium umbrella. <laughs> yeah, you buy two. That's right. <laughs> uh, it's just a fascinating planet. I mean, it is smaller than Earth, but uh, geologically uh, it is just um, a fascinating thing. And, and the topography is uh, mind-blowing all its features are just so much bigger than ours um yeah i guess because it's smaller i don't know is that is that a well it, it, certainly with the volcanic features you know that the biggest volcano in the solar system is the olympus, olympus mons that's right yes which uh, if i remember rightly is 27 kilometers vertically from base to top and i suppose since volcanoes grow by uh, you know, by spewing material out of uh, out of their crater um, or their caldera, maybe the lower gravity is why it's such a big volcano yeah. because it allows you to build bigger features. Mm -hmm. But uh, remarkable stuff, really remarkable. What a place! And great that we're managing to explore it with uh, rovers and orbiting spacecraft. Absolutely, yeah. All right, so much more to learn about Mars, and we know so much already. This is Space Nuts, the podcast with Fred Watson, and I'm Andrew Dunkley. What a matchup! And what a team, Mike! MetroPCS and the iPhone SE for $0 on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Oh, impressive. Play with the best. Switch to MetroPCS and get a 32-gig iPhone SE for $0. MetroPCS. Coverage not available in some areas, plus sales tax and $10 activation fee. Claim based on talk and text. Not valid for active numbers currently on our T-Mobile network or active on MetroPCS in the past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Space nuts. Finally, Fred, we're going to look at this uh, this mission that NASA is proposing, which is going to take off in about a year from now, I believe. Uh, and it's, it's certainly captured the imagination of uh, people around the world. I've seen a lot of news reports and read a lot of news reports about this mission to, and I, I quote NASA here, to touch the sun, which um, sounds like a pretty dangerous exploit. Uh, and I'm guessing it's not a manned mission. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. So what did the first astronaut say who touched the sun? Ouch. And the answer is, ouch, 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 <laughs> ouch, 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 ouch. Well, in the modern vernacular, he probably was a bit more descriptive, but we won't, <laughs> yeah, we right. won't go there. Yeah, that's right. I, I actually, um, I think uh, a mission to touch the sun is slightly uh, exaggerating because in a sense, we are all touching the sun, that the Earth... You know, because we're we're within, we're bathed with this stream of subatomic particles mm. from the sun. In a in a way, we're all part of the sun's atmosphere. But I do get what they're what they're talking about because this spacecraft, when it uh, makes its epic trip to the sun in 2018, will actually by a factor of seven times, I think, be closer to the sun than any other spacecraft that's ever been sent into the inner solar system. So its minimum distance from the sun will be about six million kilometres. Remember, we're 150 million kilometres from the sun. Yeah. So it's quite clearly uh, much, close. much closer. It's definitely close. Um, at that, uh, that distance, of course, the radiant heat from the sun will be very, very high. Uh, and they're expecting 
that the spacecraft will encounter a temperature uh, in its environment or, or be heated uh, to, with, to temperatures in the region of 1400 degrees Celsius. So uh, they have a carbon fiber heat shield, a carbon composite heat shield. We've talked about that in connection with uh, uh, with the Rocket Labs ventures, but this is a bit different. This is a hundred millimeter thick heat shield, which the spacecraft will kind of hide behind. Yeah. Um, um, and um, it, its instruments will sense the atmosphere around it. And I might mention that it will not have cameras on board because it, it's not going to be taking images. But I think the Europeans are also sending a spacecraft to the sun that will actually peep through slots in its heat shield to, to take images of the surface of the sun with a resolution that we've never seen before you'd want, that, that you'd, one... you'd want some heavy filtering on the lens exactly <laughs> yeah. i reckon you otherwise you're well, just gonna have oh look at that beautiful white picture of nothing yes that's right <laughs> it, would be, it would be white very mm. white indeed mm. anyway um so that there is a european venture which we'll probably hear about uh, in due course which will not be as close to the sun but will be uh but will 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 actually uh kind of supplement uh, what this NASA probe is doing. I haven't told you its name. It is called Solar Probe Plus. Oh uh, that's the, the NASA the NASA <laughs> vision. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. How do you know? It's, it's telling you what they it's doing. They need to employ me to come up with names for things. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, well, I'll, I'll mention that yeah, when I'm speaking yeah. I mean, I think I can come up with something better than that. They, 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 if they employed a sub-editor from a, a newspaper, they'd, you know, that's that'd, right. they'd change the, the world in terms of astronomical it names. It, it could, it could. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, you know, in, in many ways, I think we've gone downhill since the days of Apollo and oh, yes. <laughs> Gemini and Mercury and all these. Yeah. Anyway, Marino. for all that... Mm. <laughs> What's the point of Solar Probe Plus is to tell us about the atmosphere of the sun because there are huge questions that still remain. It's our nearest star by a very long way. Uh, and we do understand it, um, I think, remarkably well, given you know what the understanding of the sun was when I started taking an interest in astronomy, believe it or not, 60 years ago, Andrew. No. Uh, that's, uh, that's when uh, I started getting hooked on all this, and we just thought the sun was a big ball of gas then that didn't do much except shine. Now we know it's riddled with magnetic fields. We know uh, it has... Um, uh, an atmosphere, an outer atmosphere, what we call the corona, uh, which is what you see during an eclipse, by the way, the, mm. this beautiful ethereal white structure, often um, sort of delineated with magnetic field lines. That is what you see during an eclipse. The thing about the corona is its temperature is vastly greater than the temperature on the surface of the sun that we see, which we call the photosphere. That surface is at about 5,000 degrees Celsius, but the corona is up to a million degrees. Oh, what? We don't understand how that, um, you know, that heat transfer works between uh, between the uh, the surface of the sun and the outer corona. How does it get to be so hot? How oh, does it it's get? A, it's to a be confection hot? oven. Yeah, that's. <laughs> well, it may well be. We think it's probably to do with magnetic fields, but really nobody knows. And that's 
the, perhaps the main reason why Solar Probe Plus is being sent. The other one is to work out really where these subatomic particles come from that, that um, you know, that permeate the environment of the sun, the, the solar wind, uh, which plays such an important part in earthly life because we see aurorae when there's a strong solar wind. Uh, we suffer sometimes communications and power blackouts when the solar wind really starts blowing a gale. Um, back in 1989, I think uh, something like 9 million people lost their electricity supply in Canada mm. uh, because of the, the solar wind being uh, very strong. And uh, essentially, it was a geomagnetic storm. Where does all that come from? We don't know. So Solar Pro Plus, we hope, will help to answer some of those questions. And one of the great concerns in the modern era, because we're so reliant on electricity and digital technology, is an electromagnetic pulse from the sun yeah that's destroy, right destroying our electronics it's a it's a yeah. it's a known concern it's a known problem and um yeah the, the, even in little towns like mine the emergency services departments have actually got this on their emergency list yes. as, a, as a potential problem for the future yep. so and it could happen anytime so yeah that's yeah. right there you go so that you know understanding all that and perhaps allowing us to predict it better uh, that might well be of assistance to everybody one final question how long does the trip take from earth to the sun uh, by rocket my recollection is uh, i looked at this a few days ago i think it's something like 200 and 20 days or thereabouts to get uh, into that close proximity. Uh, As I understand it, it will be uh, a a sort of flyby mission. This spacecraft will actually uh, whiz past the sun uh, at the closest point in its orbit and then continue its orbit, basically taking it back out to the Earth's orbit. I think, um, I, I don't know whether the plan is to see how well it survives the first pass, and if it does okay, send it back again. Yeah. Uh, but it will probably wind up in orbit around the sun uh, in any event. Okay. Well, we watch with interest. This is really exciting. Fred, as always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Great pleasure to talk to you, Andrew, and I look forward to the next time. Absolutely. Um, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory uh, on Space Nuts every week, and uh, we thank him for his service. Uh, And uh, I thank you for listening. Uh, Join us again next time. Uh, You can hear us on most podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, uh, Podbean, Audio Boom, Stitcher, I've missed one and plenty more. Uh, And don't forget our sister podcast, Space Time with Stuart Gary, uh, available on all those platforms as well. And uh, follow us on Facebook and send us your questions. We love to hear from you and uh, occasionally we'll do a little segment answering some of those. Until next time, from Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson, thank you for listening to Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Tights.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.